3: From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the U.S. is in the midst of a massive modernization effort of its nuclear weapons. As tensions rise globally, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's expanding arsenal, and instability in the Middle East. Journalist Sarah Scholes set out to understand the scope and details of our nation's largest reinvestment in its atomic infrastructure in decades, visiting our national labs, talking with scientists, and re-asking the question of whether having a nuclear arsenal keeps us truly safe. Scholes' new book about the science and philosophy of nuclear weaponry is called Countdown. Join us. welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. America's nuclear arsenal is old, writes Sarah Scholes in her new book Countdown, where she describes the U.S.'s modernization effort of our nuclear weapons currently underway, the biggest project in decades. Our bombs are getting, quote, age-altering surgery, nips and tucks, and new parts. And Scholes believes we should know more about this, not only because our tax dollars are paying for the upgrade, but but also because we face different nuclear threats today than we did during the Cold War that demand we revisit the role and responsibility of having potentially world-ending nuclear weapons, something many of the scientists at our national labs, as Scholes found out, think about all the time.
4: Sarah Scholes joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me.
3: I'm wondering if you could just start by laying out what we mean when we say our nuclear arsenal, or stockpile, like what's in it?
4: Yeah, so there are three basic kinds of nuclear weapons in our arsenal. There are the kinds of nuclear weapons that are dropped from planes. There are the kinds that are shot out from submarines. And then there is a set of missiles um, that are uh, buried beneath the ground in the uh, upper Northwest and west of the United States. And those all together are called the nuclear triad.
3: The nuclear tri- triad, and there are about 5,000 of those in total, but some of those are in storage, others are more capable of being activated.
4: Right, right, that's correct. Yeah, we don't need all 5,000 on hair trigger alert all the time. So how old are they? <laughs> um, I mean, it, it depends which of the they we're talking about, but but the U.S. hasn't designed and you know fielded and made operational a new nuclear weapon um, in decades and decades basically since the Cold War and so all none of them are new um, and they all um, are aging and the nuclear weapons scientists of the United States are trying to figure out you know what to do about that to make sure that they still work and are safe and reliable
3: so are they too old to function predictably this is something that you said there's some debate about
4: right Uh, yes Uh, the nuclear weapons you know as, as the, there's a whole uh, agency within the government called the national nuclear security administration whose job it is to ensure that the nuclear weapons are safe secure and reliable um and they keep an eye on how the weapons are aging. They do tests, they run simulations, and um, they you know make findings that you know I can't know the details of and neither can you. And when they find something that looks problematic, they do an alteration or a modification or a modernization to make sure that they they do work. Um, and so they're doing that work all the time
3: and, and they are the foundation or justification for that kind of modernization. Is, is basically defended frequently in terms of just by politicians, by by people who support this idea that has sort of undergirded our nuclear philosophy forever, which is that we need to have a nuclear stockpile so that other people won't attack us.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, kind of the, the contradictory philosophy of deterrence. is that if you have nuclear weapons, people won't attack you in large scale conflict won't break out because they are afraid that you will retaliate with your uh, big scary weapons. But that idea um, both only works if you are actually willing to pull the trigger on those nuclear weapons. Should uh, you deem the need for that, or if other people are confident that they actually work, and so part of the motivation behind modernization is, you know, international confidence that that the weapons are as um, effective as they they were in the past. I, I want to
3: play a clip of an exchange that you transcribe in your book between Maine Senator Angus King and and Jill Ruby, who is head of the or Ruby, who is head of the National Nuclear. Security Administration. This is at her Senate confirmation hearing in May of 2021. And I think King lays out the modernization for deterrence position quite clearly here.
2: Our essential defense posture for the past 70 years has been deterrence of others' attacks on us. Is that not true?
3: That is true, Senator.
2: And deterrence rests upon your adversary understanding that you have a capacity to make life very difficult, that's a euphemism, for them uh, and the will to use it. Is that not correct?
3: That is correct, Senator.
2: And if your deterrent is out of date, in bad shape, not modernized, not able to be delivered, then that in fact makes the country less safe, does it not?
3: That is correct, Senator.
2: And so the modernization that we're talking about is essential to maintaining the peace. Isn't that correct? It is. I think this is important because people back home in Maine say, why are we spending all this money on nuclear weapons? And the reason is because we never want to have a nuclear war. The irony or the paradox of nuclear weapons is we build them so we'll never have to use them. And that strategy has, in fact, worked for over 70 years. Is that correct?
3: That's correct. So I want to ask our listeners actually to weigh in to see if they agree with that, if they believe that nuclear weapons are needed to deter nuclear war, paradoxically, as you say, Sarah Scholes, right? And uh, you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum. We're on X, our digital community on Discord. We're on Instagram. And you can always call us, 866-733-6786. Because for example, as Michael tweets, nuclear weapons and mutually assured destruction served as a deterrent against nuclear war for decades, but no weapon is a deterrent unless it works when called for. So that makes a lot of sense in people's minds, but why are some people against modernization?
4: Yeah, I think the people who are against modernization would like more to be moving away from this reliance on nuclear weapons to keep the peace you know you know the idea of deterrence makes a lot of logical sense uh, to a lot of people, um, but it is kind of a dangerous foundation to build world order (laughs) upon. You can never be sure that the peace has been kept because you're deterring attacks or for some other reason or a whole host of reasons, and in the meantime you have this big threat in the background, thousands of our bombs, thousands of other people's bombs, um, and so uh, if you're modernizing, you're continuing that reliance instead of figuring out a more peaceful way to have peace than having a bunch of bombs in the background. Yes,
3: I've seen the arguments of of abolishing them completely. You quote Global Zero in your book that says, imagine a future where stability is not precariously balanced on the threat of mass destruction, (laughs) where safety for some no longer requires vulnerability for others. But you also quote others who say that the best type of nuclear arsenal is basically the smallest and most feeble one that you need for deterrence,
4: right? right right yeah there's the idea of minimal deterrence like do you need five thousand weapons to convince people to not attack you could you have 10 instead or uh, you know some other kind of number and then there's also the idea of something called um, a capability-based deterrent which is that you you do get rid of the weapons but you retain the ability to make them so that anybody knows that you could you could come back at some other time and attack them but without having Every, all of these weapons sitting around, you know, f- with the potential for for accident or miscalculation or miscommunication or things like that.
3: Mm. We're talking with Sarah Scholes, journalist and author of the new book Countdown: The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons. Sarah, in a piece you wrote for the New York Times last year, you you quote the president of the Nuclear Threat Initiative in Washington D.C., who says that the threat of nuclear use today, I believe, is as high. It is as it has ever been in the nuclear age. Do you agree with this? And if so, what do you think is driving it? Is, is it global events?
4: Um, I mean, I would say that the president of the Nuclear Threat Initiative probably knows more about the level of the level of threat than I do. So I, you know, I trust that assessment. Um, But I think, you know, as scary as the Cold War was with, you know, the Soviet Union and and the U.S. holding each other in conflict all the time, things are much more complicated now. There are um, a number of other nations with nuclear weapons. There's the threat of nuclear terrorism. We have, you know, hot wars going on involving states that do have nuclear weapons nuclear weapons. And, and, you know, when you have a, a one-on-one conflict, that's one thing. But when you have a, a many-on-many conflict and just a lot of tension, um, I think that that does, you know, in some way make things more dangerous.
3: Yeah. You've written about how we are in this new nuclear age. And, and Pete tweets, when I think of nuclear weapons, I wonder why Republicans are hastening doom for Ukraine, certainly Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the sort of saber rattling around nuclear weapons has probably played a role in the way that we are starting to think about nuclear threats now.
4: Right, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Russia has made implicit and explicit uh, nuclear threats during its invasion of of Ukraine. And part of the the dynamics informing the way that other countries respond to Russia's invasion is the fact that it is a a nuclear superpower. um, And that's unavoidable.
3: It doesn't sound like, though, that necessarily was the initial impetus for your interest in looking into our nuclear stockpile. Why did you write this book? What made you get into it? It's not like nuclear weaponry and their state was in our headlines, really, or on the forefront of our minds.
4: No, I uh, it, it happened because I uh, I moved to Colorado um, and uh, out out west and and you know in California there's just you kind of come upon these nuclear sites, current and former, um, just going mm. about your your business. Um, and uh, I'm a I'm a reporter, uh, lucky for me. And so <laughs> I uh, asked a few of the uh, nuclear weapons labs out out my way um, in in New Mexico if I could just come visit and ask them some questions about. The the science that was going on there. And I expected when I went to be learning about, you know, weapons things. Um, but what they did was show me, like, here's what we're doing for Mars science, or here's what we're learning about supernovae, or black holes, or things like that. Um, and I just, uh, you know, everybody loves a, s- a secret. And I knew that they were not studying those things necessarily just out of the, the goodness of their hearts. They were studying them. Because of their relevance to nuclear weapons, and so just after that, I became uh, a little bit obsessed with with trying to learn what was actually um, going on uh, there. And so I started, you know, writing articles about how the science applied to the weapons, and then eventually said, "Hey, now I just want to write about these these weapons, and I want to know what's going on." And um, and then, unfortunately for all of us, world events lined up to make it all a little more relevant than (sighs) when I initially started on the book.
3: Yeah, sure. Well, Well. We'll dig into more of what you found out after the break. We're talking with Sarah Scholes and with you, our listeners. What do you want to know about the state of the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal? Do you believe that the U.S. needs to have nuclear weapons to deter peace and support this modernization effort? Do you feel like we are at an increased nuclear threat? Again, for the first time maybe since the Cold War. Why? Maybe you remember the nuclear threat during the Cold War. How did it shape you, your life, and your views on nuclear weaponry? You can email forum at kqed.org find us on our social channels at kqed forum Our phone number 866-733-6786 i'm mina kim
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
3: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal and a big effort now underway to upgrade them with Sarah Scholes, who has looked into this and written about it in a new book called Countdown, The Blinding Future of nuclear weapons. And you, our listeners, are weighing in. This listener writes on Discord, nukes don't deter nuclear war. What if there's an accident with the weapons? They should be abolished, not modernized. Max writes, I am totally in favor of modernizing nuclear weapons and continuing to use them as a deterrent. Sarah, what does it mean to modernize our weapons? What exactly is, is going on?
4: Yeah the uh the the detailed details of what exactly is going on um you know remain classified like like much about nuclear weapons so it's hard to learn um too too much but you know the basics are that you know nuclear weapons aren't just made of, you know, scary radioactive material. They also have electronics and regular explosives and, you know, little pieces and parts that just like, just like a car, you need to replace periodically. And so some of the modernization, much of the modernization is kind of relatively mundane stuff like that. Um, uh, But I think that the, the biggest and probably the most controversial aspect of modernization is something called plutonium Pit production, and this involves replacing the cores of plutonium metal that are th- that are at the center of the nuclear weapons that we have, and those are something that we haven't made um, really since the, the late 1980s, and so um, that's a that's a big investment. So, so these
3: are like hollow spheres of radioactive metal that, as you say, form form the heart of the weapon itself. Why is it controversial to, to make these?
4: Right. Well, um, from from an on the ground level, you know, plutonium is a pretty toxic subta- substance. That's why it's in in nuclear weapons. And so, doing this kind of work involves, you know, environmental contamination risk, worker risk, um, things like that. It's very expensive. This is not a capability that we've really had since since 1989, uh, and re. You know, making that happen, again, is is no simple task and costs a lot of money. Um, but from the scientific side, you know, um, people who are against plutonium production say that the, the science says that these plutonium pits that we have are fine right now and will be fine into the uh, foreseeable future. And so... Um, the effort to replace them is just you know a capital intensive project for these labs to have and something that is internationally provocative um, and a way to make better weapons um, and so those those are the things that people are not quite on board with I see so the people who want
3: to replace the pits worry that because they haven't been used or, or tested in decades essentially that they could have degraded in some way. And so that it's better to make new ones to then replace the old ones or to make new ones for new <laughs> bombs or new weapons.
4: Right. Uh, a little bit of both in answer to that last question. The first pits that are made will go in new Weapons, which is part of what's controversial, um, and they will also replace replace pits and old ones. But uh, yeah, the the scientists who study the plutonium, you know, plutonium is um, constantly decaying. Uh, it's radioactive, and so breaking apart. And as it breaks apart, you know, it, it shoots off other atoms and energy, and creates impurities in the plutonium pit um, that that cause it to be not quite the same as when it was built. And that has, as far as we know been fine for a long time and is fine right now. But the scientists say, you know, we don't know exactly what will happen in the future. And and to make sure that nothing bad does and these still work, um, we need to replace them now before we find out what the bad thing is that happens.
3: You said it's expensive. How much is it estimated to cost essentially for the U.S. nuclear arsenal makeover?
4: Mm-hmm. I don't have the plutonium-only number on hand, but the, the modernization program as a whole will be approaching $2 trillion over the course of 30 years.
3: $2 trillion over the course mm-hmm. of 30 years. A- and explain why making new weapons with these plutonium pits, not necessarily just replacing the old ones, is so controversial. Does it sort of ratchet up tensions with other nations that we are growing the arsenal
4: then as (laughs) opposed
3: to just upgrading or modernizing it?
4: Yeah, I, I think it probably does, and we're not the only ones doing that. Um, China is expanding its arsenal. Russia is modernizing its arsenal. Um, but I think w- what is partly controversial about all of those programs is that technically, you know, most of the nuclear nations on Earth have agreed to try to move away from a reliance on uh, nuclear weapons as part of a, a, a treaty called the, the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And, you know, if you are building... New weapons is is that what you're right? is that what you're doing? You're not just fixing the old ones; you're making better ones than you could have made in the 1980s. And um, that doesn't look like walking away from reliance on nuclear weapons.
3: Right. And right now, Russia has suspended essentially its cooperation, or it said it has, it claims to have suspended its cooperation in, in New Start, which caps the number of weapons that we can have, and also, in terms of. Uh, The testing ban as well so we are in essentially a pretty interesting state when it comes to how much we are following the letter of the treaty. Uh, We've got more calls coming in and comments. Let me go to Nancy in San Mateo. Nancy you're on.
0: Yeah hi thanks. The way if I understand this correctly modernizing these weapons makes them more accurate and more hair trigger alert and more first strike Capability, so I'm wondering about
2: the treaties i the presidential directive fifty nine that
4: President Carter put in place to for first strike capability, and then president and President Clinton uh made that permanent by saying the the u s reserves the right to strike first, and that will be the cornerstone of u s military policy into forever into the future and so what does that mean for future
3: treaties Uh, Nancy thanks so so Sarah first first strike policy can, can you explain what Nancy is talking about
4: yeah, so that means that the U.S. says it, it retains the right to not just, um, you know, bomb another country if they have bombed us, but to make the first move and be the first to launch a nuclear weapon. Um, and it's, uh, it's pretty controversial, but it is something that the United States has affirmed um, over and over, despite, despite calls for it to, n- to not be that way, that it, it would like to be able to strike first if it deems that necessary. And then is that in violation of any treaties? Um, no not that not that I'm aware of uh, but uh, it is not a policy that that every country has and and what makes it controversial is that that is you know that is not strictly the the retaliatory part of deterrence but I think the argument in favor of it is that you know if you can if you can stop a conflict from starting in this way or stop your country from being bombed if you have reasonable information that that someone else is going to do it first then that's a capability you want to hang on to. So I think, you know, there's there's arguments on both sides.
3: Well, listener Todd writes, we don't need bombs for deterrence. No first strike is a pledge we can embrace and make the law. The president alone should not be allowed to decide. We're talking with Todd and with other listeners at 866-733-6786, at our email address forum at kqed.org, on our social channels at kqedforum. We're talking with Sarah Scholes, a journalist and also author of the book Countdown, about our nuclear arsenal and how it's getting an upgrade and, again, raising questions about the role and responsibility of the U.S. as a nuclear nation. And this point that Todd makes about the president making the decision, I think it's really worth it to, to dig into our protocol when it comes to using nuclear weapons. We've referred to it as finger on the button, you know, having the nuclear codes and so on. You wrote a really interesting piece about our nuclear protocol. Can you remind us first what it is? Is it really one person?
4: Sure, yeah. It's fairly simple to explain because there really is just one person in the United States. The uh, president has the authority to make a decision to launch nuclear weapons, and it's, you know, um, unofficial protocol for the president to confer with with other um, leaders within the government before doing that. But they do not have to ask anyone's permission. They don't need a vote. They don't need someone else to make a nuclear strike first any given day they can essentially as long as it's not a war crime decide to launch launch a nuclear weapon which i think uh yeah uh uh, our caller is not alone in uh, finding that disturbing yes
3: because they can dismiss any of the advice that they would be getting from the aides that they would confer with the secretary of defense or military leaders and so on there are groups who'd like to change this protocol, and actually using using brain science as well. But can you talk a little bit about some of the arguments for changing that protocol that you covered last year?
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the biggest argument is just that the, the power to uh, destroy a lot of people's lives um, should not be in the hands of any one person, um, no matter who that person is or, or how capable they've proven themselves. And it's uh, it's better to have at least one other person um, agree to the decision. And um, I think that's the biggest argument, you know, in terms of the brain science, you know. Uh, even a president in, in a volatile situation is not just acting on on logic, they're reacting to feelings and previous things that have happened to them and time pressure, and th- that's just a lot of dynamics going on for, for one person to have all of that power.
3: Yes, just the stress on the brain when there is a time compression, the the gravity of what it is that they are about to do. The argument in, in the piece from the people who were wanting to change the protocol, is that the assumption is that there is a rational actor behind that decision, but there are just so many stressors that can make that situation, you know, inhibit someone's ability to be totally rational. Can you also talk about psychic numbing or inability to be empathetic if the number of casualties grows? That was really striking.
4: Right, right. Yeah, that's an interesting psychological finding. You know, if we hear about one person's death or two people's death or even 10 people's death, that's something we can um, understand and ingest. And it makes us very sad. But when the numbers start it's probably something our brains can process on an individual level. Like, what does it mean to our brain for one million people to die, two million people to die? That's kind of Im- impossible to actually conceptualize. And so, as the number of casualties goes up, it actually, you have less empathy than you would if it were a smaller number of people, kind of paradoxically.
3: Yes. And then there were simple fixes like suggestions that you change the speaking order in the meeting so that uh, it isn't necessarily the president coming down and saying, this is the decision I want to make, because that can then inhibit people from sharing their real opinions about whether or not they should do a nuclear strike. So the, the suggestions ranged from the small to large, I would say, with regard to changing our protocol but what is the likelihood, you think, of of that happening, that we would actually revisit it and make modifications?
4: Yeah, I mean, at first, when I started reporting that article, and from the outside, it seems like such a huge and you know monumental thing that you would ever change this this you know world-altering protocol. But I, I talked to a historian named Alex Wellerstein who said that actually you know the protocol has has subtly shifted over the decades that we've had nuclear weapons as we get new technology or people have new fears, and so it is it is possible. It just requires political will and the right president and the right circumstances. And you know maybe now this time when we are thinking about nuclear weapons more than we. Have in the recent past is a time to introduce some of these proposals and give them some thought.
3: Noel writes, nuclear weapons are enormously dangerous but don't appear to be terribly useful, so why do we want to keep them? I've always felt nuclear weapons are inherently absurd and we need worldwide disarmament now. Another listener writes, if every country had one nuclear weapon able to hit any other nation, even a minor incursion would be a very risky move. Paper promises are less effective than certain dread. This listener wants to know, can you discuss the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons? Is that the law?
4: Uh, well, it is an international agreement and a, a treaty. Um, and it uh, essentially uh, nu- uh, nations that do not currently have nuclear weapons who have signed it agreed not to acquire them. Um, and uh, there, there are a lot of details in here, but countries that do have nuclear weapons kind of agree to what I was talking about earlier to like gradually um, decrease the, the reliance and the number of weapons that are out there. And, th- and the idea of it was to kind of, you know, halt halt this expansion. You know, we used to have a lot more nuclear weapons in the world than we do right now. And even though there's still a scary number, it's much less scary than it was at the height of the the Cold War. And so, um, you know, that sort of seemed to be the direction that things were going and there was momentum that way back then.
3: We're talking with Sarah Scholes and with you, our listeners, about a sense of whether you're feeling an increased nuclear threat for the first time since the Cold War, what you remember about that threat during the Cold War and how it has shaped you. Do you want to see the U.S.? update and develop a robust stockpile of nuclear weapons to deter nuclear war? Would you like to see disarmament? What do you want to know about the state of the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal? Jerry writes, I was 15 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I remember going to bed wondering if I would wake up in the morning. I lived in the Boston area. A missile launched from a Soviet submarine could have gotten to me within 15 minutes. Greg writes, do our current nuclear bombs have a best by date? Do nuclear weapons expire? We talked, Sarah, about how it's unclear whether the plutonium pits do or not. Is that the same thing as just generally do nuclear bombs expire? Do nuclear weapons have a best buy date? As Greg wants to know.
4: <laughs> yeah, I like uh, I like Greg's phrasing. I might steal that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately, if they do, they uh, the the people who work on them don't tell me the best buy date actually. But um, I think the concern is not. You know, necessarily that they won't work at all, or that something spontaneously bad will happen, but that they won't be as effective. And if you have them, the idea goes for this deterrence, th- so that people are threatened out of out of attacking you. if they're not as effective. Um, and if people don't have confidence that they're as effective, then they're not doing their their threatening, job um and uh so that's yeah i mean that's the question and the hard thing about all of these questions involving deterrence is that you can't actually have a very definitive answer it's not really an idea that you can test in a definitive way
3: yes yes not an idea that you can test after the fact We have more listeners weighing in. Tater writes, there have been many close calls with nuclear weapons accidentally being activated or almost deployed. I can see how modernization could help reduce this risk, but I am morally and ethically opposed to maintaining a nuclear weapons arsenal in the first place. I think we should be downsizing the arsenal at least, and any remaining modernization should focus on safety. Let me go to caller Tom in Los Gatos. Tom, you're on.
2: Hey, great show, Mina, and thanks for taking my call uh Sarah, nice to, uh hearing your conversation too. you've really added a lot to uh my knowledge base uh but considering the uh situation you know in the uh Middle East right now we're pretty much on the verge of nuclear war In fact, in the Neset, some people in the, uh representatives are actually calling for the i d f to use nuclear weapons you uh, know in the Gaza, maybe in the West Bank as well so we're uh way mm. beyond the need for modernization I'm saying what we really need is peacemakers. Uh, we need all the all the new treaties to replace all the treaties that are expired, not with Russia, but uh, with every country in the world that has nuclear weapons or just wants to have nuclear weapons, of course, including probably Iran and Iraq.
3: Well, well let me ask you, Sarah, is that is the New START treaty essentially expired because Russia has said that it's suspending it? Or at least for what we know right now, maybe they haven't been doing... The the administrative details of that, but are are they generally staying to the limits in terms of how many active weapons they have on hand?
4: Um, I don't have that answer for for the current um, state of things, but I would say that if they are, you know, not not entering the treaty, then they're saying that we don't want to commit to that for the future. At like least.
3: anything could mm-hmm. happen. Essentially, right. it's still very mm-hmm. very precarious. We're talking with Sarah Scholes. Her book is Countdown: The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons, and we'll have more with her and with you after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Sarah Scholes, who's written a book about the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal and where it stands. The book is called Countdown, The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons. Scholes is also the author of Making Contact, Jill Tarter and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. In writing this book, she spoke with scientists at our national laboratories and learned a lot about what goes into weapons that are often kept secret from the public We're asking you, our listeners, what you like to learn about our nuclear arsenal with Sarah as our guest, whether you believe that the U.S. needs them to deter nuclear war and that mutually assured destruction has worked for us and should continue as our foundational philosophy around them. Do you feel, as some have shared, an increased nuclear threat or do you remember the nuclear threat of the Cold War and how it shaped you? The email address is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Barbara Wright's listening to the show has made me very emotional. I get incredibly nervous when I see our leaders walking around with the nuclear tote in their entourage, especially Donald Trump. And of course, there was that effort that was spearheaded during the Trump administration out of those concerns or even leading up to them in 2016, as I recall, Sarah. But Wayne writes, Ukraine had nuclear weapon deterrence. With promises of protection from the U.S. and other NATO countries, Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons. The chances of Putin attacking Ukraine would have been greatly diluted had Ukraine still had nukes. The lack of weapons and Trump's attempts to break up NATO are the conditions that allowed Putin to invade. We're hearing such a range of Of thoughts opinions and views on nuclear weapons I imagine and what I was struck by was that you also encountered this among the scientists who work at the labs can you talk about how they are able to feel this way but also work on them
4: right yeah a a surprising number of the scientists at the national labs are actually fairly uh, i guess i don't know if i would say anti-nuclear but they favor disarmament they would also prefer to live in a world that did not have nuclear weapons at all um but as as one scientist at that lawrence livermore lab put it to me you know as long as disarmament remains a distant goal which i would say it does seem to be a pretty distant goal we need deterrence and uh as long as deterrence is iffy, dicey, scary, we need to work toward disarmament and i would say in my experience that is the prevailing attitude um, at the nuclear labs and um you know there was an anthropologist named hugh gusterson who studied nuclear weapons scientists and how they made sense of their work and you know they came from all across the political spectrum all across the spiritual spectrum scientific spectrum and what they had in common was that you know they had made sense of their work as making the world a better and safer place. If the weapons exist, somebody has to work on them. Um, And also a belief in general that humans are rational enough to control nuclear weapons. And I think, you know, that has come into question maybe a little bit more lately than it had before that.
1: Hmm.
3: The sister wants to know, are the current nuclear bombs hundreds of times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb, which killed so many on impact and so many more through radiation poisoning.
4: Uh, yes, the initial bombs that the US dropped on Japan were obviously very powerful, very destructive, terrible weapons, and the ones we have now are much more powerful than those, although in general, less powerful than ones that we had um, previously built and so had the, the Soviet Union. And you know, yeah, I, I agree with the caller. That's um, scary and unpleasant. Yes,
3: it was the, the estimates go as high as more than 225,000 people who were killed by those bombs mm-hmm. on Japan. We don't test nuclear weapons the way that we tested the one that was dropped during World War II by firing them off above ground. So talk about how they are tested now with our computer systems.
4: Right, yeah, one uh, one Lawrence Livermore lab scientist told me that simulations are the new uh, testing site. So we used to uh, detonate nuclear weapons in uh, Nevada and other places to see if, if they worked, and back then you could just say, you know, did it explode, did it not? Did it have the expected yield that that we had calculated? And now you have to do all that in a simulation, in a supercomputer. Um, and so you kind of, you have to understand the very fundamental physics going on within a weapon to have enough trust in that simulation to think that it's accurate and not, you know, hallucinating or not quite right. And part of the way that the labs do that is also running physical experiments. Like we don't uh, detonate entire bombs, but we do what are called subcritical experiments, which are, you know, just below the level of a a weapon exploding um, and testing different parts and kind of putting all those different pieces together to try to form a full understanding of of a bomb without detonating it. And, uh, I had someone describe it to me as trying to figure out if a phone works, um, before you could just turn the phone on and see, does the, does the phone turn on, do the apps work? And now you have to understand like, what does this capacitor do? What does this resistor do? Um, and put all of those things together to, to guess, uh, predict whether the phone will work or not.
3: Yes. And can you just describe what happens during a subcritical test. I understand the metaphor, but are we doing this underground? Is it having environmental impacts?
4: Uh n- uh no, yes, sorry. We are doing it underground and um it happens in a containment vessel, so it's it's essentially like a, a smaller amount of of plutonium than you would have in a weapon, kind of a scaled-down version, and it doesn't go critical. It doesn't have a sustained nuclear reaction, and it happens inside a big uh containment vessel which keeps all of the things that come out of the explosion uh contained. Um, So, and it happens uh, deep, deep underground in a tunnel. So, you know, we used to detonate nuclear weapons in the atmosphere just on the ground of the desert and things like that. And that did cause a lot of environmental contamination. And so we don't do those kinds of things anymore.
3: How good are we at letting people know about these
4: subcritical tests? Uh, not quite as good as we used to be. There used to be announcements um, ahead of time that that were relatively easy to find. And now um, there's kind of an obscure uh, governmental publication called uh, the Stockpile Stewardship Management uh, Program um, that lays out the series of tests that they plan to do in in a given time period. And so it's a little harder to know until after the fact that one was taking place.
3: Chris writes, as smaller states and dictatorships acquire or develop nuclear arms, do you see any potential for larger world powers like the U.S. and China to involve those nations in nuclear arms talks to increase stability and world safety?
4: Uh, Sure. I think that that I mean, I think that, you know, talking about nuclear weapons is always better than doing more active things about nuclear weapons. And so uh, if new states come uh, aboard the the nuclear armed um, as nuclear armed nations, then I think it would be good for all of all of us and the countries that don't have nuclear weapons to talk about what that means for the world order.
3: How much are we talking about? what we have sharing information about it with other nations what are the arguments and debates that are going on among the scientists that you spoke with with regard to the value or importance of doing this which could be seen as counterintuitive
4: mm-hmm i mean in the u.s nuclear weapons are some of the you know uh best best kept secrets most most classified information um in the u.s but you know this this idea of deterrence that we're talking about doesn't doesn't work unless other countries know what you have going on and what your, your capabilities are. And so at the same time that you're trying to not give away your secrets, you also do have to talk publicly and internationally about what is going on so that everyone is on the same on the same page and uh i think that people at the labs are starting to recognize that that kinds of tra- that kind of transparency is uh more important and there are um, you know other efforts outside of the labs there's something called the the nuclear notebook um, that attempts to p- to put information about different countries ars- arsenals um, online so that th- even if they're not talking to each other they can look at this website and see what's going on other places
3: Well, the Zissner writes, uninformed opinions about strategic national security issues are absurd. This should be left to the experts. It's the failures of human nature that require us to have nuclear weapons in the first place. I take the listener's point, but I also, the extent to which this affects us all and how little we know about it is something, and yet we have very strong feelings about it, right? I think there's a lot in that, right? What is our role? What role should we be able to have in helping determine our nation's course of action on this, Sarah.
4: Yeah, I think. I mean, that's a, as a as a journalist, it's not necessarily my place to have um, that kind of policy opinion. But I think that you know, as as citizens, as residents of the United States. This is these things are being done in the name of our country with our tax dollars, and I think that whatever that subject is, whether it's nuclear weapons or transportation or anything, it's, it's our job to be as informed as we can about what's going on.
3: Let me go to Bill in Los Gatos. Bill, you're on.
0: Hi. Hi. Um, yes, I'm calling from the, the SETI Institute founded by Jill Charter, so we're big fans of Sarah. Oh. great to have her on this program. Um, I'm calling because uh, at the Institute we tend to think of things at planetary scale and we certainly worry and think about existential threats to our species and and of course nuclear weapons uh, are among the the top ones along with things like climate change. I'm curious about Sarah's perspectives on the fact that while our long-term survivability as a species probably depends on getting rid of these weapons ultimately when we can figure out how to unite as a one species on one planet, but in the meantime, curious to know if she feels that, that this modernization program, which is perhaps inevitable in any case, uh, is, is something that makes sense uh, from a journal, journalistic point of view. Hmm.
3: Hmm. <laughs> I know you don't want to say, Sarah, <laughs> but I think Bill is asking is a, as, as, as a good question. You do know a lot about this at this point, and your book is very even-handed, but do you have a view?
4: Um, yeah, you're right that I would prefer not to say my view, but I think, you know, when you speak to the scientists, and they use things like the car analogy of, you know, you replace your air filter in your car and things like that. I I will say I am of the opinion that I don't think nuclear weapons are going anywhere anytime soon, even if, you know, we spontaneously gave them up. That wouldn't mean everyone else would. And then what happens to stability? And and so I think I think we're in this place. And I, I do think that if if nuclear weapons are going to continue to exist, we should make sure that they're as safe and reliable as they can be. And so I think that, you know, as far as the aspects of the modernization program that get at at that part of things, I would say it makes sense to me.
3: Hmm. We're talking with Sarah Scholes, her new book, Countdown, The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons, out today. And let me remind listeners, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Chad in Vallejo. Chad, you're on.
0: Hey, you got me? Yep. Oh, okay. Hey, yeah, my question was kind of more related to the old nukes that we have, and if it's possible to repurpose some of the degrading plutonium in, like, nuclear reactors. I know they use uranium. I'm not so clear on the science behind, you know, degrading plutonium, and uh, I know that would be a huge factor that they're probably looking at, too, with our degrading nuclear power plant as is and our base load energy and yada, yada, yada. So I just didn't know if you had any... Thoughts on that or have heard anything mm. as far as proposals on how they would deal with the older weapons.
3: Yeah, repurposing them. So, Chad, thanks. Sarah? Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: yeah, I I don't know of any efforts to to take any of the plutonium and use them in, you know, in a nuclear energy capacity. And a lot of times, you know, the, the radioactive material that goes in weapons and that, that goes in, in reactors, you know. The two, never the twain shall meet, um, they're separate programs. But I will say that the plutonium for the new plutonium pits is recycled. Um, it's coming from old plutonium that we've already made and used, so, so some amount of that is going on,
3: hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Alan writes, it seems unsafe for us to disarm nuclear weapons unless all other countries disarm their own nuclear weapons at the same time. Perhaps a gradual phase down over many years might be better. But how could we be sure no one is developing new weapons, upgrading old weapons or hiding weapons? Do you want to take a moment to talk about, uh, well, Talk about that, but also the work of test Light and Josh Carmichael, who are constantly trying to detect whether or not any nuclear testing is going on.
4: Sure. Um, yeah, I'll take the, the first part first, which is that, um, you know, trying to make sure that people are doing what they already agreed to do through treaties and things like that is is something that we do now, um, you know, for, for treaties like um, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, where people agreed not to... Um, not to test nuclear weapons. you uh, There's there's a saying in that world called "trust but verify." Like you trust that the countries that signed that agreement are going to abide by it, but you would also like to check it out. And so, if if we move to a world with um, fewer or no nuclear weapons, we would continue, um, you know, verification programs like that. And uh, one of them, um, as you mentioned, Mina, is. Uh, an effort by two scientists at Los Alamos, Tess Light and Josh Carmichael, who are attempting to take all of these signals, like um, the ground shaking, uh, radioactivity in the air, um, sound, sound waves, uh, or actually lower than sound waves, radio waves, these are all signals that come out of a nuclear detonation. Um, and they are attempting to take all of those signals put them together, ones that come from space and ones that come from Earth, and make the detection of nuclear tests fast and and automatic because right now it's kind of a slow and tedious process. Um, And the idea is that if you can detect whether someone is doing a nuclear test or exploding a weapon, um, then, you know, that that will deter them from doing so if they know that you can do it quickly, automatically, and, and for tests at a very low level. And so that is their project going on.
3: And it's interesting because with the just the incredible pace of new technology, I wonder how much that influences or impacts how much we need to have, um, you know, and some of these bigger questions about modernization and so on.
4: Uh, yeah, I think that's a good question. And I mean, some some of the new technologies we have are actually going toward um toward this treaty verification, like there are scientists at Sandia National Lab whose, whose whole job is to try to come up with new technologies to anticipate treaties or agreements to make sure that we can um, you know, make, make their use reliable.
3: The listener writes, the risks of unintentional nuclear wars or other nuclear accidents have been rigorously studied by the National Academies of Science. They've concluded that the risks of nuclear war remain real and are becoming more complex as new technologies and new adversaries arise and have great uncertainties. Nuclear weapons threaten our existence just by existing. A couple of questions just quickly from this listener's comment. One is, uh, you know, other generations like to tell us, previous generations like to tell us that they would do drills in school, nuclear testing, uh, nuclear drills, and so on. Is there anything that you feel like we should be doing <laughs> as a <laughs> nation? Just, I mean, those are of limited effectiveness, but yeah,
4: I think, I mean, I think learning about the, the fact that, you know, nuclear weapons have always been relevant even when they were in the background and are you know newly relevant again today is a start i don't know that we need to go back to um the the air raid drill era but i think just you know being informed about what's going on in this country and in others is probably a good first step
3: and that is the point of your book countdown are there any other resources you would recommend if people do want to learn more about this now
4: um, sure. I mean, the, the nuclear threat initiative that we mentioned earlier has a lot of good reports. Um, there's a group called the Federation of American Scientists that publishes a lot of documents. Um, and if you want to get information from from the people who are working on this, that's the National Nuclear Security Administration. Well, I appreciate
3: as always our listeners sharing their questions and their experiences and their views and what's shaped them. And thank you, Sarah Scholes, for coming on and talking with us today. Thank you so much. My thanks also to producers Tessa Paoli and Caroline Smith for today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation,